Hello, and welcome to the JSGC Policy Podcast. I'm Susan Elder, and here at Joint State, we research policy topics within the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and discuss them. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm here with our Executive Director here at Joint State, Glenn Pasowitz. Hello, Susan. And also Brian DeWalt, who is our sound engineer and co-host. Today, we are discussing Medicaid capitation rates for drug treatment providers. We are joined by the project manager for Senate Resolution 352, Allison Kopsowitz. Hey, Susan. As well as Steve Kramer. Good afternoon, Susan. Glenn, can you give us a little bit of background about Senate Resolution 352? SR 352 was sponsored by Senator Brooks, and it directed joint state to study how the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services, that's DHS, decides how to distribute medical assistance funding to drug and alcohol treatment providers in the Commonwealth. DHS distributes money across a network of regional organizations that use the money to reimburse service providers for the work they do to help Pennsylvanians suffering from substance use disorders. If you want details beyond that, you'll need to listen to this podcast to find out how our staff pulled together this report on a very short seven-month time frame. One thing that this report has a lot of acronyms. So I was wondering if uh, you could give us an explanation of what some of those acronyms are that we might encounter during the podcast and that you would certainly encounter when you read the report. There are a lot of different entities and agencies and players in the system here. And there are a lot of acronyms, especially in the report. That's why we created an acronyms glossary at the end of the report. Some of the more common acronyms that you'll come across, obviously DHS, the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services, DDAP, which is Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs. You'll see reference to BIMCOs a lot, BHMCOs, which is Behavioral Health Managed Care Organizations. We, we talk about them to a great extent in the report. SCAs, that's another acronym you'll see. That's Single County Authorities. They're also another important part of this whole system. So there are a whole host of acronyms, but those are some of the more common ones. Steve, could you give us a layman's explanation of what capitation rates are? Entities known as primary contractors, they often coordinate and administer health care benefits for eligible consumers, often with the assistance of BIMCOs, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more, I think, later. They receive fixed payments from state and federal funding sources to cover these health benefits. Now, the rate for these payments is called a capitation rate. And a capitation rate, that's just essentially the flat rate paid to the primary contractor for each program member each month. Now, states set the capitation rate through consultation with an actuarial firm. State capitation rates require federal approval. So the states put together a proposal on the rate that they're going to use, that they're going to propose to use in their state. And it gets sent to the Centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, for approval. Once CMS approves the proposed rate, the rate can be implemented within the state's managed care program. Now, in Pennsylvania, the Department of Human Services, DHS, sets its capitation rates in consultation with its actuarial firm, which in our report we mentioned that's Mercer, Mercer Actuaries. Now, one important aspect of the capitation rate is purpose, its intended goal. And the goal is to approximate actual contract costs for healthcare services and administrative costs necessary to deliver and coordinate those services. 
primary contractors or, or BIMCOs then negotiate the reimbursement rates with the healthcare providers based on that rate. Ali, can you describe how Medicaid funding flows from DHS and travels to the different service providers throughout the Commonwealth? Sure, Brian. On the DHS side, the federal funding comes from Medicaid funding. This funding is received by DHS, and DHS then contracts with primary contractors through the Behavioral Health Choices Program. These contractors, the primary contractors, can either be a single county entity or multi-county entities, or in rare cases, a BIMCO could actually be a primary contractor. There are not any BIMCOs that are primary contractors currently. The capitation rates, as we just discussed before, will be developed for each rate cell, which is just different demographics of the members of the behavioral health choice programs. And for each rate cell, the capitation rate will be developed for each county or multi-county entity. So each primary contractor receives different capitation rates. There are 24 primary contractors in Pennsylvania currently meaning many counties participate in these multi-county entities and they don't administer the program individually within their own county. The next step is the primary contractors contracting with BIMCOs, which take on different administrative tasks required in the Behavioral Health Choices Program. And these tasks can vary depending on the contract between the primary contractor and the BIMCO. The contract amounts will also vary based on the, the split of the administrative tasks. There are five BIMCOs in Pennsylvania and 24 primary contractors. So as you can see, BIMCOs will be contracting with different primary contractors. The same BIMCO could have you know, seven or eight, nine, ten of those, those contracts. Then lastly, BIMCOs and contractors share the responsibility of creating the reimbursement rates for individual services offered by drug and alcohol treatment providers. Some rates, like residential rates, for certain services have a minimum that's established by the state and the reimbursement rates must be either at that rate or above. And others are just left up to the BIMCOs to determine based on the risk involved, which Steve will talk about a little bit later. As you noted earlier, Medicaid monies from DDAP are another source of funding. Does it go through a similar process? The DDAP funding starts at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, that's the federal source of the funding. There's also some state funding added in there as well. This funding comes through DDAP, and it is distributed to SCAs based on historical cost data. The SCAs then enter contracts with providers similar to the BIMCOs. They're setting the rates for the specific individual services that are offered. And this is through the XYZ package, which is a cost-based package It has a specific formula that allows providers to plug in their cost information, and it produces a number for the rate for each service that they are offering. If you're listening to this and you'd like a concise pictorial representation of this, Allie and Steve put together a flow chart. I believe it's on page 22 of the report, and you can access that through the show notes. So both you and Steve have mentioned BIMCOs. Can you circle back around a little bit and highlight what they are and what roles they play in this process? Absolutely. BIMCOs are entities essentially responsible for coordinating and administering the delivery of healthcare benefits to the consumer. I had explained earlier, they assist primary contractors. Now, to be clear, they are not the provider. They simply coordinate and administer the benefits. 
And oftentimes they provide administrative services such as uh, management of claims and benefits, data collection and analytics, customer service, and other services to the, the primary contractor, depending on their contract. Sometimes BIMCOs enter into what are called ASO contracts, administrative service only contracts, where they only provide the administrative services, most of which I just mentioned a couple minutes ago. But sometimes they enter into what are called risk-based contracts with primary contractors, where they share the financial risk of the contract with DHS. So that risk is essentially, they're on the hook for the cost, any excess costs of the healthcare services that exceed the federal and state funds that they've received to deliver those services. At the end of the year, if they get through a certain point in the year and they have exceeded the public funding that they've received to fulfill their obligations under the contract, in a risk-based contract, they will be, to a certain extent, responsible to continue their work covering those costs out of their own pockets. Can you explain more about the process for providers to request funding or reimbursement from BIMCOs? BIMCOs are required by their behavioral health choices contracts to have a process for providers to request an increase in their reimbursement rates for individual services. There are few guidelines about what factors need to be considered by the BIMCO when they're reaching a decision about adjusting the rates, which can lead to confusion for providers on what financial information they should be submitting to which BIMCO. If it's a larger provider who has multiple facilities in different regions, they might be on the hook for different financial information in one location versus a different location if they are under these different BIMCOs. The general process, however, is that the rate increase request would be filled out by the provider to whichever terms the individual BIMCO has made to them. They will submit this information. The BIMCO usually has some kind of internal review board or a financial analysis team that will look over the request for a rate increase. They will typically send on their findings, maybe with a recommendation to the primary contractor, because the primary contractor has the final say on whether a rate increase is granted or not. So the BIMCO will consider it internally. They will pass this along to the primary contractor, who will also consider it. And then the primary contract will reach that final decision and they will send notification. I believe most of them say it has to be within 30 days or so back to the provider to say, you know, whether they got the rate increase or not. So it sounds like these guidelines are really opaque in how they may deny requests. Right. The health choices contract agreements does say that the BIMCOs must have a system in place for reviewing the rate requests, but it doesn't really enumerate what should be considered or what is produced at the end of that kind of internal review. There's no requirement for the BIMCO to come back to the provider and say, this is why we made this decision, or all they're required to say at least is yes or no. They can decide to provide detail. Some people we spoke to said they did provide detail, but there's no requirement here in the contract language that requires them to do so. And we found similar ambiguity on DDAP side, which Steve can cover. Yeah, on the DDAP side of the system, the reimbursement rates are decided by a cost-based package with specific formulas we had discussed. However, some of the providers reported that when they submitted the packet with their information, they would be denied a rate request or given a lower counteroffer. And I believe Ali spoke about that a little bit. An ambiguity does exist within the SCA, that's the Single County Authority Operations Manual. 
So it does include a formal appeal process, much like as is the case with the BIMCOs. But for these situations, there's some ambiguity or some confusion as to whether the language is specifically stating that SEAs are required to explain an initial denial or a counteroffer of a rate outside of the formal appeal process. So once a provider requests a rate increase, that initial denial or counteroffer from the SEAs, we were informed, does not always come with any written explanation of any kind. There was a little bit of inconsistencies. I think some of the SEAs we spoke with said that they do provide one, and and some actually believe that they were obligated to under the manual requirements. However, when we took a look at the language, it wasn't clear as to whether or not that justification for a denial or a counteroffer was required at that initial stage. So who puts out this manual? I believe it's DDAP, DDAP's operations manual for single county authorities funding. Why can't we just ask DDAP to clarify what they mean? Well, we we did. <laughs> they basically said they're not required to, which is what we also determined from our interpretation. What makes it strange is that some of the single county authorities think that they are. So there's enough lack of clarity in the language that these SCAs aren't sure how to interpret it. So makes it difficult for us to collect any kind of data because, you know, there's not like something we can point to in the in the operations manual that says, yes, they do have to do this. So they are. Instead, it's just, well, this person said they are, but there's 47 single county authorities and not all of them answered us when we asked them if they do this. So it's there's not a consistent way to measure up these these guidelines against what people are actually doing without talking to 47 different agencies or authorities. So because this discussion is a bit technical, can you remind our listeners why this matters? What happens as a result of the unclear guidelines? I would say the biggest byproduct of the complexity and the seeming lack of transparency is provider frustration, which I think is really the impetus that caused this report to be commissioned, is providers feel that they're not being compensated or reimbursed at at proper rates. They feel that these uh, primary contractors are getting these very big numbers of, of funding from the government. And then these BIMCOs, which are kind of the middle layer, are being kind of stingy with with passing that funding along. So the point of this report was to go back to each of those levels and and say, where does this money, this big number at the top, where does it go if it doesn't go to the providers? Because they feel like they're not being able to, to get these increases when they ask for them and they're not really getting an explanation. So I think uh, we'll get to the recommendations later, but we talk in our recommendations about th- that as just a way to foster trust in, between the providers and these BIMCOs, uh, because I, I wouldn't say that this report found any evidence of money being wasted or being put in a per- certain place, but there's so there's so much to to look through to try and figure out this system that I can definitely understand, you know, the confusion or the of where this money could possibly be going if it's not going straight to the services that it's supposed to be going to. So, Allie, can you give us some background on how you approached this project? If we can circle back to that point and look at the whole, the comprehensive sense of how did you go about doing this? 
Very little of the information that we reviewed for this report is publicly available. You are able to find the health choices contract. So that's something that we looked at very early on as we went through. But as far as the practices of the individual BIMCOs or especially information about primary contractors, it's difficult to come by. This research was conducted with close relationships with representatives at DHS and DDAP and then over 20 interviews of various sources we had all five BIMCOs meet with us. So we were able to pull some information straight from the BIMCOs that's included in the report. Primary contractors was a little bit more difficult. We only spoke to a few of those. We didn't get as much information from them. I spoke with DHS and DDAP to try to get some of that kind of top level picture of how the system worked. Um, we worked with the Rehabilitation and Community Providers Association to uh, pulled together a lot of those 20 interviews. Maybe half of those interviews were providers who were able to address their concerns and their feedback on the system in those conversations. You guys have both mentioned ambiguity in the research process. Were there other things that made it difficult to get the information that was asked for by the resolution? I would say, yes, the lack of the publicly available information is definitely the biggest piece of that. I felt while working through this that some of the questions that the resolution asked would be better answered by a pretty thorough review of financial reporting from the primary contractors specifically. Because of our short deadline on this report and our inability to get access to the actual contracts and the financial reporting to review them, we were unable to take exact dollar amounts and say this much was given to a primary contractor and this much was used with this contract with this BIMCO. I know for this report, you held a lot of meetings to try to get to the bottom of this issue. Did you notice any commonalities in the feedback you received? Yeah, I would say they were saying a lot of the same things. It didn't take many meetings, especially with providers, for us to see the the common themes there, which were a lot of interest about how the system worked above them and where the funding could be going when when they were having trouble getting their, their rates increased. So I think that's the biggest one is the lack of transparency. Because these providers, they would have relationships with both the SCA and DDAP side and the DHS BIMCO side because they're, they have patients from both of those demographics. So they're working with all of these entities and they might see an incredible difference in rates between the two and, and not really understand why the number they would get from one entity would be different than the number they would get from another entity. And they're not getting explanations. So they're unable to kind of make sense of that. One provider said there was a 400% difference between rates they were getting like in one region to another region. So based on the the structure of the system, the combination of the county that's involved, the multi-county entity, the BIMCO, the SCA, and the provider, those four different variables can lead to different results for each of those combinations. So it's extremely difficult to try to research to try to, you know, create numbers for these these pieces of information, it's also difficult for them to manage as they're trying to figure out how the system works. So I think that is definitely the the largest and our our recommendations kind of address those those bigger themes. Ali, can you tell us more about the recommendations in the report? So our first recommendation that we made was that the process for developing reimbursement rates should be made more transparent. Uh, So that's just a pretty basic top-level statement that it was difficult for us to find 
these documents that govern the system, there are certain things that we saw that would say, you know, this must be reported publicly or this must be sent to DHS. And we weren't able to find it anywhere. So to be able to actually see the different pieces of this system would, I think, help the providers to understand a little bit better where the funding goes and how it moves through the system, which, you know, some of this report is hopefully going to help do that. The second one that a primary contractor actually recommended was that providers should be properly trained to submit the financial information that they're being asked for by the BIMCOs. Just because, like I said, that information can be different from BIMCO to BIMCO or primary contractor to primary contractor, the providers, especially ones on the smaller side, may not have the financial training to put together certain paperwork that the BIMCOs would be looking for to demonstrate the need for a rate increase. And this primary contractor felt that it should be their responsibility to train the providers to give them the information that they need to be able to give them a rate increase. And there's five BIMCOs, so that means five training programs? Yes, yeah. And I, there could be more just based on the primary contractors. There could be one for each primary contractor, so that could be 24. So, you know, that could be a larger number. Um, but I, I would guess that they would probably rather do it by BIMCO than by primary contractor. The next two go hand in hand. And they're also kind of what we've been talking about here towards the end, that the BIMCOs should give explanations for their rate increase denials or counteroffers. And it's just the same recommendation for the SCAs, that both of their guidelines have enough ambiguity that they are not required to explain these. And we believe after talking to the providers that requiring the explanation would put some accountability onto the BIMCOs and the SCAs to justify their decision and also allow the providers to maybe make a better request in the future. If their request really does have some kind of weak point to it, that this would be better for the future. And we did definitely hear anecdotally that this is happening, that primary contractors or BIMCOs are communicative and they're able to work with providers about this. That's just certainly not the case overall. So some kind of guideline that writes that in that requires the BIMCOs and the SCAs to do this would be helpful for providers. And then the last one is just a smaller one. Value-based purchasing is the direction that a lot of healthcare is headed in Pennsylvania where there are incentives for reaching certain milestones for providers. So the funding would be withheld or like given in a lump sum if the provider reaches a certain goal. And those are listed in the report, what some of those goals could be. But what we heard from providers was if they can receive a rate increase as an incentive versus just a lump sum at the end of the year, it's harder for them to budget off of a, a lump sum at the end of the year that they are not sure that they're going to get or not. So if the incentive is a, a rate increase that is sustainable, that's more beneficial to the providers. It's time for us to wrap up our conversation for today. Allie and Steve, thank you so much for joining us here today. If you're listening and you'd like to get more details about Medicaid capitation rates for drug and alcohol treatment, you'll find the links to the report in our show notes. The music in our podcast is provided by Joseph McDade. Thanks for listening. <laughs>